covenant reading and the text for our sermon this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and beginning at verse 1. Beginning at verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among them, among those who come after. And then we turn in the book of Romans, or to the book of Romans in chapter 8, in one of the few places in the New Testament where Paul refers very specifically to Ecclesiastes. Of course, he probably knew the entire Old Testament in Hebrew by heart, but uh, he here refers, you look at the word futility when we come upon it, beginning at verse 18, and that is Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning at verse 18, this is the word of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth, worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's funny. I preach frequently in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, which was one of the early places that I labored before Steve Magoski was called there. And so we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I joke with them that it'll take about 10 years to do the 19 sermons that I have on Ecclesiastes. And I would ask for your prayers because um, Dr. Meredith M. Klein, the son of Dr. Meredith G. Klein, both Hebraists and, and um, really masters of Semitic languages and very faithful Christians. Of course, Dr. G. is in heaven with the Lord, but uh, M. is here on earth and hoping with me uh, to do a, um, a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes. And he, as the Hebraist and I, as the pastor, I've preached through this a number of times and found the response has been um, really uh, very strong because I think we're saying something that is not normally said even among evangelicals who believe that this is God's word. We're taking a different tack, so we're hoping to add to the conversation. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the world out of whack, which is what 1 through 11 teaches us. We're going to ask the question and answer it, why is the world out of whack? And then we're going to look at what we can do to navigate this very difficult and challenging world in which we live. And so just as everything seems good in good order in our lives, something inevitably goes wrong. Or perhaps we think we can find the perfect spouse, the perfect house, the perfect job, the perfect friends, whatever we know. And there's probably no one in this room except maybe if there's an infant present that doesn't know this already, that it's imperfect. And things sometimes terribly unjust seem to happen and we don't know. We're frustrated. We're perplexed. Why? Because this happened, Lord. Life seems so unfair. It doesn't seem to be the way that it ought to be. The just end up suffering persecution, and the unjust seem to thrive, Psalm 73, as if they didn't have a care in the world. And so we, we get frustrated because life is, in many ways, just looked at from a human perspective, unfair. And so Ecclesiastes probably more powerfully than any other book in the Bible, faces reality just as we experience it in this world. And that's the tack that we should take in reading this very powerful and important and unique book in the Bible. There have been three basic ways that interpreters have interpreted this book. And the first, of course, would be a liberal way that doesn't look at the Bible as being God's word, and that would be that the writer of Ecclesiastes is kind of cynical about his covenant religion. He's had it. Things haven't worked out for him the way that he would have wished. He's explored wisdom. He's explored work and found that they really don't uh, measure up. They really end in despair. Well, of course, 
the writer himself contradicts this in so many places, particularly in chapter 12. And so that would be not a view that we would want to take. But then secondly, and this is, I think, the majority view of evangelicals who are brothers and sisters that look at this book and say it's part of God's word, the spirit of God inspired it, but it's basically meant to be a book of evangelism. We, the writer is putting himself in the place of an, as if he were an unbeliever and therefore trying to get the unbeliever to see how, how futile life is without the living and true God. And while the commentaries that I've read, and I've read dozens of them over the years, um, have many, many important and good things to say, and I've used them in my preaching, but at the same time, I think it is a more, more faithful to the text to see that this is, not, this is not someone who is putting himself in the position of an unbeliever. He is looking at the world as we see it, as believers, a world full of trouble, full of injustice, full of difficulty, full of challenges. This is the world the way it actually is. And I think one of the reasons why I found parishioners have found this such a comforting book is because it helps them to see that it's not sinful to understand the world the way it really is and to be sometimes frustrated, perplexed, and even just deeply troubled by the way the world is. It's okay. This writer, who was a strong and wise believer, believed that he was looking at the world accurately. And so this is what we might call the view of the biblical realist. So the world is out of whack. It proves to be frustrating, perplexing, and also fleeting. And so as we look at verses 1 and 2, we're looking at the theme of the entire book and certainly the theme of this passage that we're looking at. And so the theme of the entire book, and it's really telling us to fear God in a wacky world, but it begins with the words of the preacher. And this is a difficult word in Hebrew. It's koheleth, and I like to refer to him as Q. You remember from James Bond, there's, there's I think it's M, or whatever his name was, but, but referring to it easy, it's easier than Koheleth to say that a lot. So Q is the preacher, but Q is not a preacher. That's the nearest thing in English that we can come to encapsulate the word, but Q is really more than that. He is a gatherer of wisdom. Well, preachers do that, hopefully. But he is, he is distributing it to his people, and he's actually composing wise sayings He's a kind of spiritual gardener that loves to share the fruits of his labor. He's also an artist, a poet, and uh, a very mysterious character in, in this book. And so he is a Solomonic figure. There's always been great debate about whether Solomon wrote the book or someone else using Solomon kind of as the person whose eyes he wants you to look through. And I don't think the debate is necessarily ever going to be solved this is God's word, every single word of it, and that's the thing that ought to be the root of our conviction as far as the author goes. But he is there living in the theocracy. So he's living in Israel, and he's probably there um, recognizing that God has looked at Israel and given us the whole of the Old Testament law as a picture of heaven. Now, when you read, like, the book of Judges, you go, whoa, this is far from heaven. This is, this is 
Israel was ugly in so many ways and so, so sinful and so rebellious and so idolatrous. But when you look at the laws, you see a kind of perfection of human life in all of its aspects, in relation to God, in relationship to one another. All of it is, is perfect. It's looking forward to the future kingdom that will come, as Paul said, in the resurrection of our bodies, when our adoption into the family of God will be fully realized in every dimension. And we long for that, even as, as we heard prayed uh, this morning. We long for that time of perfection. But the real world doesn't match up to that perfection, and that's not a surprise to God, because he's the one in control of all things. And so the situation then is that there is this seeming disconnect between, let's say, if you look at the Proverbs, if you obey God, you will be blessed. And then we look around and we see someone like Paul the Apostle, and he obeyed God, and he was in chains. He was in despair. His life was threatened. He was stoned. How do we put these two things together? Well, we begin by looking at the motto, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Thank God the Bible doesn't end there because we would end up very unhappy and, and rightly despairing. The word vanity is an interesting one. It's an, another word like preacher, only even more profoundly difficult to encapsulate what the word hebel in Hebrew means. And I love the sound of that word because it kind of hebel. It sounds like there's trouble. There's something wrong with the way things are. And so the semantic range or the, the range of meaning in that word is really tremendous. And that's what we see explored in the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we see in it, we see frustration, we see perplex, uh, being perplexed, and then the fleetingness of life. And also, I think very little of it has to do with what we think of vanity as looking in the mirror too much or something fairly superficial like that. But it's a profound word, and it's used 38 times in this book. Whenever a word is used that frequently, the Lord is seeking to get our attention, to pay attention to that word. Now, I love my friend Meredith, the Hebraist, um, has translated this wacky. And that always, we don't have children here this morning, but uh, it usually gets teenagers and younger kids' attention. Oh, the pastor just said wacky. That's, that's unusual. But I love that word not only because it's homiletically powerful, but because it really does, it, it encapsulates the message of, of Ecclesiastes that the world is out of whack. It's not the way it should be. It's not the way that God actually designed it to be originally. And so he has um, said, he, in fact, he's work, we're working on the translation of these, just these verses now. Um, as we work on a commentary, and he's saying, and this appeals to New Englanders, that the world is wicked wacky, because it is wicked, for sure, and things are out of whack just because of sin. And so we look at the world around us and we see that it is truly out of whack. And so what's the use? That's the next thing that the... That the writer does from 3 through 8. And notice that the whole of this is in poetic form, but 3 through 8 is a specific poem from beginning to end. 
And so we have the theme, one and two, and then three to eight is the poem, and then nine through 11 is a commentary on that poem. And of course, if we were just left with those 11 verses without the context of the whole Bible, we still would have reason to despair. But let's look at these for a moment and remember that poetry makes up one-third of the Bible. Now, I am a poet and have been reading and writing poetry for over half a century. And um, so I have loved poetry since I was a kid because I was raised with a dad that recited Shakespeare and was always, didn't even go finish high school, but he loved Shakespeare. And he would recite this all the time. And then I fell in love with poetry because I had a great high school teacher of English. And he taught us everything from E.E. E. Cummings to Shakespeare. And, and so poetry was, came easily to me. But I will ask, if I ever teach um, young men aspiring to the ministry, I'll say, how many of you um, like poetry? And, you know, maybe some timid fellow will stick up his hand. But the fact is, and I tell them, you do already love poetry because you love the Bible. And one-third of it, at least, is poetry. It's in poetic form. And so the idea that the Spirit should, should inspire artistry and craftsmanship in the way he puts words together should not be foreign to us. It should be something we can rejoice in because God is the author of craftsmanship, of language, of beauty. And so the writer here, at the end of his book, he says this, Koheleth sought to find words of delight and right, uprightly he wrote words of truth. So delight, beauty, and truth in the Bible they go absolutely together. And so what's the use? That's, that's what we see here in verse 3. What does man gain for all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Did you ever come to that conclusion? You've worked hard and you wonder, you know, you see the cemetery and you realize that you will be there one day. What's the, what's the use of all this? I can remember as a young counterculture type, I was a, a hippie back in the day and lived on a commune and went to uh, rock concerts and did all of that sort of thing. And there was, a time, it was a, there was a frustration with life the way it was. And I came to the final conclusion that life in the commune was actually worse because there were no rules to sort of inhibit our worst instincts. And so the fact is that... Um, that uh, Life can sometimes seem absolutely meaningless and useless, and the question is, is there any gain in it? Should we continue? And a lot of people drop out. I didn't. I wasn't sort of designed that way, I guess, but there are many who drop out. They get frustrated with life, and they're happy, in fact, sadly, that the government will send them money every month, and they don't have to work and do anything meaningful. But this is a real question. Why? And in fact, what the first cycle, there are three cycles in the book of Ecclesiastes, and the first cycle actually deals with both work and wisdom. What's the use? Is there any use pursuing wisdom or pursuing work? And then in cycle two, we take up work, and in cycle three, finally ending with wisdom. And so in 2.11, we see this. If you turn to 2.11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, 
of striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And that's 2.11. But then look at the answer in 3.9. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so this is now his conclusion is that under the sun there is really no use to work. And so we come then to this phrase, under the sun. It is used more than any other phrase or word in Ecclesiastes, except for vanity. It's used 28 times. And what would you think that meant, under the sun? What a gorgeous day we have, by the way, out here. We, I came out this morning and thought, wow, I could be preaching in a polo shirt and shorts in this weather. And it's under the sun. It's what goes on ordinary life, everyday life. It's not what it means in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you go back to the ancient world, you see that the sun was worshipped in the place of God. So the Egyptians worshipped the god Ray. And they even have symbolism of this, the great disc, and this is, this is God. And of course, they're close in a sense because God reveals himself through his creation, and the sun is one of the most powerful revelations of who God is. Psalm 19, we see that nothing is hid from the heat thereof. And what the psalmist is saying there is that the law of God, which represents his awesomely holy character, is something that no one can escape. We can't escape the judgment that the law of God and his holiness brings on humankind in our sinful condition. There's no escaping it. And the day of judgment will prove that in an ultimate way. And so that's what under the sun means. It means just what Paul is saying in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so the world of sinners, brothers and sisters, is under a death sentence, under the sun. And God has actually purposefully made work to be frustrating in order to get our attention. He purposefully wants us to ask that question, what good is it all? As believers, we know there is good in it. It's a relative good, but it is good. But the fact is that sin has really ruined the world. And so we have these endless cycles of life under God's curse. And that's what the poem is then from 4 to 8. Just listen to the way the poetry is set up, and I think it's, a, it's pretty well translated. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Notice the place of the earth in that first sentence there in um, verse 4. One generation, and 
and then another. One goes, dies, one comes, is born. But the earth remains forever. What is the earth here? The earth is a graveyard. Well, we don't like to think of it this way. A friend of mine who lives in Florida says that because there are so many older people there, notice I didn't say elderly, I think of myself as older, and he said that the graveyards, they're, they're, they disappeared. They put them away. They don't want people seeing them because they're afraid it would be depressing. In the old days, if you look at churches, the, especially the old churches in our communities, the graveyard is right there. The church is in the middle of the graveyard to remind us of the hope of the gospel and that death wins from a human perspective. But the fact is, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul so eloquently tells us in Romans 8, has overcome that reality. And so death, then, seems to be, that's the, the cycle here. One generation goes, one generation comes. I remember R.B. Kuyper, a famous uh, preacher um, and also a professor at Westminster back in the 30s, and I think into the 40s, and um, his grandson told me that when he was dying, he was like, he was really upset because he said, I still have more things to do. I want to have so much more. I want to write and preach. And, and then he died. He couldn't do anything about it. But that's a real frustration. It's real. Frustration is part of what the way the world is because of its wackiness. And then we come to the commentary in verses 9 through 11. So what's the use? What has been is what is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and so there's again that frustration is commenting and saying you know this is the way it is and we see this in the created order we see it in our lives it's the way that it actually is and that's where we see we read in Romans 8 didn't we for the creation was subjected to futility and there's that word it could be translated vanity not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What we have there is a clear statement that yes, things are out of whack. Yes, things are not the way they were created to be. But God is in control. That's such an important theme that runs through the entire book is that we cannot despair because things are out of whack because he is in control and his, in his infinite wisdom, this is all part of his plan. It's hard for us to swallow at times, especially when that plan hurts us or appears to hurt us. But that's where he tells us that all things work together because he, as our loving Heavenly Father, has our higher glory and happiness in mind, and he intends to make sure that we get to that final goal. And so nothing new. Other people have, of course, said all kinds of interesting things about this. And how can you believe this? Nothing new. And I forgot to bring my cell phone, which shows you how old I am. I don't ever feel that I absolutely need it. And I'll pull it out of my pocket and say, in this little, this little iPhone is what used to take up a room this size to compute. Nothing new? Well, what's the writer saying? I mean, this is God's word. Well, he's saying there's nothing new in terms of the futility of life, of frustration, of death. All of that remains the same in every generation, no matter what is new. 
I mean, when he, t he talks about Solomon, looking through the eyes of Solomon, and we'll, we would get to that in these subsequent chapters, that he built buildings and made gardens and all kinds of things. Those are all new. And obviously that's not what the writer is talking about. He's talking about the fact that life essentially, in this vain way, in this vanity, remains the same. And so life cycles remain the same, ending ultimately in death. But here, he imports this little hint. This is kind of the subtlety of inspired poetry, that if you look at verse 10 where it says, the ages before us, this is this, this Hebrew word olam, which means ancient times, or it can refer to eternity. So eternity, oh, that's interesting. Eternity now is something that the writer wants us to start thinking about because that will be also one of the, one of the themes, one of the, one of the beautiful threads in this tapestry of what the writer is creating to keep our attention and help us navigate this wacky world. So why is the world out of whack? It's sort of like a car on five of, out of six cylinders. You've, if I've had a cylinder go like that in the old days when we all had the beaters for automobiles, and uh, it still goes, but it's kaboom, kaboom, it just doesn't go right, and you know something's wrong with it. And that's the way we still go, we still live. We have enormous creativity. We reflect the image of God, even in our fallen condition, and even if we're not believers. But the world is still out of whack, and we know exactly why, because of sin. Man goes his own way. And later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, he said, the writer's cue says this, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes or inventions. In other words, and you remember in the Garden of Eden, it was basically, this is a wonderful place you've made for us, Lord, and now we can figure out how to live in it. And that's where the horror of what's happened ever since began. It began in man saying, and I heard this also in our prayer this morning, that, that you know, we choose our own ways. We said this in our confession of sin. We choose our own ways. That's folly. But that's why there is sin and death and things are, that's why there's death and things are out of whack. Things are not the way they ought to be. I love this poem by Robert Frost that you may have heard. It's probably one of his greatest poems, and he's written many great ones. But it shows how Frost, even though I think he was kind of a universalist, uh, there's no evidence in all that I've read about him and by him that he is a believer. But he read the King James Bible because no educated person in the early 20th century uh, could not know the King James Bible, especially a poet. The most poetic translation ever done, at least in, in the English language. And so he knew the Bible, which means he knew the gospel even if he didn't believe it. And he knew the language of the Bible and the theology of the Bible. And so this is what he wrote. Nature's first green is gold. Now, don't confuse that with what's coming up. We're going to see gold with certain types of maple trees. But he said the first green. So next spring, you're going to see all the trees will bud in green first. And then 
it's really, I mean, excuse me, it's, it's gold first and then it turns green. And it only, it's only for maybe, I don't know, four or five days that it's, it's gold and then it's green. So that's what he's saying. Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So dawn turns down to day. Nothing gold can stay. It's a profound sense of sadness that, that, that Frost had, and it's, it runs throughout his poetry. And it really encapsulates what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. And the difference is that he doesn't leave us without hope. As he says in chapter 3, he has put eternity into man's heart. The writer, or Jesus, in Luke says, For what does it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. He gains nothing. And so the question then is, if sin is the cause of death and vanity, what is the, what's, what's the hope? Because we're sinners. We can't redeem ourselves. Again, we said this in part of our liturgy earlier. We cannot redeem ourselves. I think that's from Psalm 49. But the fact is that there is a Redeemer. And at the very end of the book, Q is going to cue us in to who that is. He is the shepherd. And so the Redeemer is the one who has satisfied the vows that man cannot keep, which actually in chapter 5 he goes over this whole question of worship and vows. And we, we look out and go, you know, I can make vows, but I know that I'm not going to be completely faithful to them because I have indwelling sin. And it's still there as, as believers who have new hearts. And so we look then to the only one in human history who has perfectly obeyed God. From the depth of his heart to every single action of his soul, to his words, his deeds, and his thoughts. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And so the problem, of course, of humankind is that we worship the creature more than the creator. We worship the creature. And as George Herbert, in one of my favorite poems, The Pulley, which I don't think we have time to look at in any detail, but he withholds rest in that poem, Sabbath rest, rest and satisfaction, because the Lord doesn't want us to worship the creature more than the creator. He wants us for himself. He wants us, as he says, He's afraid that he will adore my gifts instead of me. Isn't that what we do? We are a gift in a sense. We're made in his image, and we tend to want to worship ourselves, and we tend to want to use all the abilities that he's given to us and our situations, our whatever we own and, and have in our lives to our, for our own glory. And the Lord is saying to us, no, I'm not going to give you ultimate rest because I want you to treasure me above all things. There should be nothing else in my life or yours that takes the place of God. But that's our native, that's our natural instinct that we seek God replacements so that we can control them. Whereas God wants to control us for his glory, but also for our ultimate and perfect happiness. That's his goal. That's what he is up to, and that's why he has allowed frustration to come 
into this world. And so the psalmist in Psalm 39 says this. He says, O Lord, make me to know the end, my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days like a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And by the way, when you go back to verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things. That's a reminder of how quickly things get forgotten in human life. We're constantly hearing about uh, leaders who are seeking their legacy. And there is an important way in which we can leave the legacy of the gospel to our children and grandchildren. But the fact is that even the greatest of men get forgotten. I'm forever reading about someone who I never heard of. In their day, they were known by half the world. And they're gone. And so there's a kind of frustration there. And that's the problem. When we work, when we worship the, create, the creature more than the creator, when we treasure anything but him, he has designed it so it will end in frustration. And so the solution to this wackiness, of course, we've already said it, it's in the Messiah, it's in the obedient one who alone pleases God and has died in our place. But we face this by trusting God and being facing the wackiness and being simply content. Content with the way he deals with us. It's not easy, but through faith he can give us this patience. He gives us this way of trusting him in the midst of the worst and the best of times. So we should never be either optimists or pessimists. You know, we I'm a naturally optimistic person, but that's just natural. And then I know people that just seem to always be looking at their shoes. They're just pessimists. And the fact is that we should be neither because, in fact, there are reasons to be pe pessimistic and optimistic in human life. But the fact is that we need to trust God in the midst of a world that is full of good and evil. It's full of blessings and cursings. It's full of grave difficulties. And so there are no straight line equations. You know, you look at some of the Psalms in the Old Testament and they tell it, they promise health. They promise overcoming sickness. And how has this happened in this world? We've just prayed for people with cancer. We all know people who are dying of cancer and who are, have had um, COVID and have died of COVID. How does this measure up with this? Well, of course, it's only when we look to eternity that we realize that there is an ultimate solution, and that's what Paul says, the whole creation and we as believers are groaning, we're yearning for the resurrection of the body. And that's when, yes, all of our, he will heal. All these diseases will ultimately be healed. And it's so important for us to believe that and to minister to those who are dying that wonderful future reality which has been absolutely um, made certain to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember then that God is the one in control of this wackiness. Listen to what the writer says in chapter 7. Now there's been a wonderful book that I highly recommend if you've never heard of it by Thomas Boston. 
and that was back in the 18th century. He wrote a book called The Crook in the Lot. It has nothing to do with thieves stealing your woodpile, but it's the crook means that there's in the lot, that is the way things turn out. You know, if you throw the dice, things go wrong. And that's what he's saying. Listen now to what Q says. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. You're saying something like what C.S. Lewis would say about Christ. He's not predictable, but he's trustworthy. So we cannot figure out the reasons he does things that seem to be out of accord with the way we would have done them. But we can trust him in the midst of whatever difficulties he brings our way. We should really challenge the unbeliever with these truths. You know, as I think about evangelism, and again, we prayed for this this morning, and we think about the world around us that's living in this wacky world, and what are they trying to do? I, I, I try to think sympathetically with people in the Congress presently who have utopian projects that will, of course, bankrupt us if they end up uh, passing these, this legislation. But they're utopian. Why? Because they have this instinct of eternity in them that is simply misdirected because they are worshiping the creature more than the creator. They want to find perfection in this life. And as believers, we know that it won't be found in this life. And one of the things, of course, that's part of our constitutional republic in its origins, it's not Christian per se, but there is a theme of every person, whether they were Unitarians or, or whatever they were, they understood that human beings were not perfect and a, a system of government will work pretty well if it takes that into account. Dispersing power, for example, and so that's just that's just temporary and it's politics, but the fact is that the unbeliever needs to see that they can, they can do a lot of damage by having a utopian vision and seeking to impose it on others. But most of all, to see that they can have a hope that goes beyond this imperfect life. Because all those utopianists will be frustrated at some point in their lives. And the fact is that only the gospel brings a true and lasting answer to their, to their problem. And so finally, trust and hope in God as your ultimate treasure. And we've really already said this, but the fact is that Paul, and particularly we prayed for a lot of churches and mission works here today. And think about this, what Paul says at the end of his great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not, it's not out of whack, it's not futile, it's not in vain. And there he really is looking back at Ecclesiastes. And so he's saying this, as we build the kingdom, as we bring people in, we preach the gospel, and the Lord brings them into his kingdom through the power of his word and spirit, that that is lasting. Death and sin have cannot corrupt that reality. And that should be a great hope that propels us, not only in our evangelism, but in our own lives. And I get into this a lot in my other sermons because it, the text
text gets into it, the Lord gets into it. But in all of this, we should not be afraid to enjoy the blessings that God has given to us. He has given us blessings. He just wants us to hold it with a light grip. In other words, they're temporary. But listen to what Paul says to the rich in 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so the writer is going to say, you know, work, you may think it's futile, it may get frustrating at times, but you should enjoy the fruits of your labors. But don't trust them. They're temporary. They're passing. You're going to have to get up tomorrow and work another day. But we can truly enjoy the blessings that God has given. That was one of the things that I really enjoyed about becoming reformed as a young Christian coming out of the counterculture and realizing there was a profound theology that took the Bible, the whole council, seriously and that I could enjoy life, poetry, gardening, architecture, whatever God may give us, music, so many wonderful things. We can enjoy them. But know that they're temporary. But the ultimate enjoyment is heavenly treasure. Luke 9, Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And then in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, brothers and sisters, that's where our ultimate hope lies in the Lord, and he wants us to treasure him above all things so that, so that then we can hold the blessings and face the difficulties and the trials and the wackiness by trusting him. He gives us the power to do that. And our heavenly shepherd is the one who will guide us through this wilderness. Remember, Ecclesiastes is given to us to have a real view of the world, the way it actually is because of sin and death, but to navigate that by trusting the Lord, and we can only do that through the Good Shepherd. And so, at the very end of Ecclesiastes, as we close, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And then Jesus says in John 10, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us eternal life. We thank you that the eternal life that's hinted to and then made more explicit throughout this book is that which you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he who has died for our sins and covered us with his uh, impeccable righteousness that he is the one 
who is our guide, both in this life and then our everlasting Lord in the life to come. We thank you that we may trust him and pray that you'd help us in the midst of the challenges of this week, the blessings, help us to enjoy them as unto you, and then help us, Lord, to face the challenges by trusting you who are in control of all things for your glory and for our good. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.